0: thank you young folks for that song who needs a microphone or amplifier or anything right and thank you to you dear ladies for all the labor that you have done in on the meals and uh, that's so gracious of you and uh, appreciate that although i i there was a there was a a cadre of of ladies down there that hide at that table back in the back and I went by there once, and they're always there. So I, I asked them, is this the leper colony? I, 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 didn't, I didn't know if they were unclean and weren't allowed to come out or what. So, but uh, thank you, ladies, for, for all the labor that you have done. It has been uh, delicious, and it's appreciated. Shall we look to the Lord as we open the Word of God this evening? Our... Dear Savior, we thank you and praise you again for the opportunity to open your word. We thank you for, again, the sufficiency of your word that meets every need, that addresses every issue. And Father, how important this issue is, as we shall bring things to a close this evening, and we just do pray that we will all be encouraged as parents, perhaps even grandparents, that we are all that we should be to our children and our grandchildren, and perhaps there are even great-grandchildren that are involved. And we just thank you and praise you for what you will do in and through each of us to the praise of the glory of your grace in our Savior's name. Amen. I call your attention this evening to one verse of Scripture, and that's Ephesians 6.4. Folks, it's been wonderful to be able to be with you, and you have endured so well listening to this guy, and you just have to suffer through one more time. I I want to share one verse with you this evening, and I'll share several others as well as we develop this this topic. But in one verse of Scripture we find, and ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. One verse on parenting. Uh, but what a verse uh, it is. And once again, in our study of the Christian home, we have seen three pictures. The wife is the picture of the church, the husband is the picture of Christ, the child is the picture of the obedient Christian. Folks, while these are individual pictures, here in verse 4, it really is a family portrait. It really brings the whole thing together. Specifically, Paul deals with the responsibilities of parents, things that the parents should do and should not do. Now, while the mother is not mentioned by name, we'll see that she is there to support her husband, and she is included uh, implicitly, if not explicitly. I, again, must be very select in what I share with you this evening, and there's much more I, I wish I could do, and even the points that I'll share with you, I won't share all of them and not completely on any of them but just trying to give you some, some, some thoughts that will encourage you. I do want to start with a couple of stories, I hope, that will kind of put things into perspective. One is told of a young student of child behavior who frequently delivered a lecture titled Ten Commandments for Parents. Well, he got married and became a father for the first time, so the title of the lecture was altered to Ten Hints for Parents. Another child arrived, and the lecture again uh, went to another iteration called Some Suggestions for Parents. Third child came along, and he stopped lecturing. And we learn a lot as parents, do we not? We we have these ideals, uh, and we find out reality. I read of another incident uh, that every parent, I think in one way or another, can identify with I just recently read this and added it a teacher was one day helping one of her students put on his boots and he asked for help and she could see why even with all of her pulling and pushing and and all of the labor the little boots just refused to go on those little feet by the time they got the second boot on she had worked up a sweat she almost cried when the little boy then said, "'Teacher, they're on the wrong feet.' She looked, and sure enough, they were. Unfortunately, it wasn't any easier pulling them off as it was originally putting them on. She managed to keep her cool, as however, as they worked together to get the boots back on, this time on the correct feet. Then the little guy announced, "'These aren't my boots.' Rather than get right up in his face and say, why didn't you tell me that, she now just bit her lip and once again struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his little feet. No sooner had the boots come off than he said, they're my brother's boots, but my mom told me to wear them today. Now she didn't know whether to laugh or cry, but finally she mustered up grace and courage that she had left and wrestled the boots back onto his feet. Helping him on then with his coat, she said, well, now where are your mittens? He said, I stuffed them in the toe of my boots. (laughs) And as the story ended, it says the teacher will be eligible for parole in three years. (laughs) I'll bet none of that has ever happened to any parent here, right? No, nothing like that. And Anybody here on parole? Never mind. No. I... <laughs> Folks, children change everything. I, we had been all, married for 14 years, and our son was a kind of a miracle. Um, but I thought I knew this girl. <laughs> I thought I knew this woman I had married 14 years before, but I found out who in the world is she. It was in a good way. But it changes everything. It changes our attitudes, our goals, our finances, even our outlook on life. Everything is altered. The most important thing that it changes, however, is responsibility. Doesn't it? Responsibility. When it, when it first hits you, do you remember that moment? When it first hits you, wow, wow. I have a tremendous responsibility here. We indeed are responsible for everything, their food, their clothing, their shelter, their education, everything we are responsible for. Later we'll deal with four elements of child training but before we do that I want to introduce our study and indeed every person must be trained to do right and to live right. Nothing happens automatically. Training is everything. Doesn't happen naturally. Certainly we all love babies, right? They're sweet and they're cuddly. They're adorable and all that kind of stuff. But are they really as sweet as we think they are? I heard one preacher say years ago, he said, it's a good thing babies are cute because there's nothing else redeeming about them. He ought to know he had a whole bunch of them himself. Folks, I once read something that was written by was not written by some ranting, raving preacher, as some would uh, accuse it of being, of course. This was written by the Minnesota Crime Commission. Now, actually, it's been around a long time. It's been quoted several times, but I think it's well worth repeating. Quote, every baby starts life as a little savage. Are you with me? He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it, his bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Denying these things, he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain ones, but all children are born delinquent if permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to be satisfied, every want, every child would grow up to be a criminal, a thief, a killer, and a rapist. It's true. And that's coming from somebody that obviously is not a believer, but somebody that has witnessed criminal behavior and interviewed enough criminals to know what they were, and no one ever altered their depravity. Folks, why is that observation true? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we know the answer to that. Regardless of age, every individual is depraved, wretchedly so. Romans chapter 1, and the outline we know is clear. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They're fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Everything is driven by selfishness. We agree that until a child reaches the point of accountability, that's my position, I believe there is a, a point of accountability, but that does not alter the fact that they are depraved in their nature. How many of you noticed that when you were raising children, no matter how little they started out, did you ever notice you didn't have to teach them how to lie? They did a really good job at that, and they got better as they went along. You didn't have to tell and teach them how to steal. You didn't have to teach them how to be selfish. You didn't have to teach them uh, mean behavior to a sibling or any kind of that kind of behavior. Their sin nature makes it all the natural inclination. In fact, they can't do anything else but do that. Is it not also interesting to observe that in the midst of all the countless books and seminars and counseling services and crisis centers and all the rest, family problems steadily increase even among Christians? One more time for a couple of statistics. According to a 2011 report by the Center of Disease Control and Prevention, 20.5% of young people drank alcohol for the first time before the age of 13, other than just a couple of sips. Additionally, 39.9% of high school students have used marijuana one or more times. 8.1% Tried it before they were 13 years old. Worse yet, 11.4% of high school students have used some kind of inhalant to get high one or more times. 6.8% have used some form of cocaine. 3.8% have used some form of methamphetamine. It's also significant that the suicide rate among teenagers tripled between the 1950s and the 1980s. As of 2012, an estimated half a million young people between the ages of 10 and 24 contemplate and or attempt suicide and about 5,000 succeed. Is there any doubt that the family is in trouble? And the problem is not simply society in general. It's not the lack of education or other similar symptom. The problem, folks, is the home. It's the home. It is disintegrating, even among Christians. But once again, God has the answer. He sums up all of what God's Word says on this subject in verse 4. In one verse... Folks, I'm going to break this down again this evening to just two major emphases, and in just a few minutes, we'll get to the four elements of child training in our text, but before I do that, one principle I'd like to share first is the father, number one, the father is responsible for training his children. And, fellas, I hope I, 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 I didn't, you don't think I beat you up when I was talking about husband's You ain't seen nothing yet. I want to really challenge you here, gentlemen. And indeed, I I preached, in fact, I I preached the message on children that I um, shared this morning. The first draft of that I preached um, 24 years ago when I was preaching through Ephesians. And then just a few short years ago, I preached through Ephesians again. I hope I got it right that time because first time I wasn't a Calvinist, but we'll we'll not go there. But the first time I preached on children, my son had been born three days before that. So that kind of has a special place in my heart, underscoring to me what my responsibilities were as a father. I'm responsible. I was responsible for his training. I want you to notice first the word ye. If you have an authorized version in front of you, a King James translation, ye is always plural, always, no exceptions. In fact, such second person pronouns are in fact one of the strengths of the authorized version in my view. All modern translations have removed all of those second person pronouns In other words, they've taken out all the these and the thou so you don't know if the second person is singular or plural according to modern translations. And because of that, I've done the research and I've looked up over 19,000 times the authorized version is already more accurate than modern translations just because of the second person pronouns. But the reason ye is important here is he's addressing, therefore, in the plural, all fathers, all of us ye fathers and tells them that they are responsible for training their children one historical fact tells us much about what the family is today you see one of the results of the protestant reformation was a return to family worship and fatherly responsibility did you get that very important principle of the reformation This changed, however, in the 19th century. As many cottage industries were exchanged for moving to the cities, men began to leave home for many hours of the day. No longer were they at home so their sons could work alongside them. And along with that trend, the responsibilities for training the children was transferred to the mother. I also learned during research, in fact, that it's interesting that if you examine a book on child training written in the 17th or the 18th century, it was addressed to fathers. But if you read a book um, or, or pamphlet or whatever, articles written in the 19th century, they're addressed to mothers. Mothers. You see, that trend flies in the face of Scripture, which declares that the father is responsible for training the children. Now, please notice also the word father here. Some expositors teach that the Greek behind fathers, which was, is pateres, could also be translated parents, but that is clearly incorrect. In Greek philosophy, pater referred to the patriarchal head of the family. And that meaning is unchanged in the Greek New Testament. Virtually all Greek authorities observe that fact. We should also notice that Paul deliberately uses pater here instead of gonos or gones, the word parents, which he used in verse 1. He deliberately uses the word that specifically addresses the father in this verse. There is no escaping the fact that the father is ultimately responsible for child training. This fact uh, fact was true even among the Greeks and the Romans. Another fascinating thing about history. By the way, folks, I have a passion for history. You know, one of the problems with theology today is is preachers don't know any any history. If you don't know history, in fact, I know one fellow that put it this way, one pastor, he said he all not only had a degree in theology, a master's in theology, but he also had a degree in history. And he said, I believe every pastor ought to have a degree in theology. I don't know, we might want, not want to go that far. But so much of our ignorance in theology nowadays, we don't know history. We don't know history. We don't know hist- what we call in seminary historical theology, the history of theology and how important that is. And because of of lack of knowledge of history, we continue to make the same errors. One commentator puts it this way, rightly observes, quote, it was typical in ancient education for the mother to teach young children. But when they reach what we call school age or a little older, for the father to continue their education, the word paideia translated nurture in the authorized version had a distinguished significance in the Greco-Roman world. More than teaching and learning facts, it was the formation of the person, which involved discipline. That, along with admonition, these terms convey sober responsibility of a father to see to the development of his children into personal and spiritual maturity. Unquote. Folks, how society has warped that basic principle of human development that God has ordained. Even many Christians have been lured into this trap. How many men have we heard say, I'll bring home the money, you raise the kids. I don't have time. But God's word said it's the father's responsibility. He better make the time. Something else I ran into some time back, Welshman Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I, I read uh, all all the time, he made a sad observation in the mid-20th century from his pulpit there in Westminster Chapel in London, commenting on feminism and how it had influenced and the undermining of the father in the minds of his children. He said this, quote, we are seeing this increasingly in this country, England, But to nothing like the extent to which they see it in the United States. There you have what may be more or less be called a matriarchal society. And the man is becoming increasingly regarded merely as the one to provide the dollars, the wage earner. The man who brings in the necessary money, the woman, the mother, is the cultured person, the head of the home, and the children look to her, unquote. This is appalling. Somebody in England has to tell us what's wrong with America. And he was right. And look where we are today. All that has spilled over into the church. And again, let me emphasize, that was more than a half century ago, and the situation has digressed even more. Well, Folks, we must go on. Let me share with you secondly and broadly this evening the four major elements Of child training. In just these this verse, Paul gives us four wonderful principles. And indeed, there is much about all this all through God's Word, but we find here a summary. I want to share with you each of these elements briefly uh, in turn. First of all, it tells us: isn't this interesting that it's number one, do not provoke your children. To anger. Provoke not your children to wrath. Interestingly, this is the only negative principle of the four. But it is also, I believe, the one that's seldom understood and often violated. This principle, I am convinced, actually forms the foundation to the other three. I think if you don't get this one right, you're not going to be able to get the others right. And in fact, like husbands loving their wives, the concept of provoking not your children to wrath was revolutionary once again in Paul's day. Some of this I shared this morning. As serious as child abuse is in our day, it's not new. In pagan society, of which Ephesus, of course, was a part, children were seldom cherished. Weak or deformed children were drowned. Children were often sold into slavery and prostitution. Some were even sacrificed, of course, to pagan deities. So Paul's statement was quite a shock to the Ephesian readers. Please notice the words, provoke to wrath. This is actually just one word in the Greek, which literally means to move toward anger and exasperation. To move toward it. In other words, there's something driving them to this feeling of exasperation and anger and frustration. In other words, with certain kinds of treatment, parents can drive their children to deep-seated anger, frustration, exasperation, rebellion, resentment, how important it is that we understand that. Now, can Christians really be guilty of this? Absolutely. There are several ways that parents can produce this kind of reaction in their little ones. Now, folks, it's bothered me for some time that while I've heard various teachers give similar principles to what I'm going to share with you in just a moment, I have yet to read someone who backed it up with scripture. Which immediately tells me they're getting it someplace else from human reasoning or from some psycho babble or whatever. They may be good principles, but there's no authority behind them. So I want to share with you. Actually, I have 12. I don't have time for all of those, not even the nine I want to give you. I can give you everything, but let me give you nine of the 12 this evening. But again, going into the book of Proverbs to back up every one of these principles. The first way, and I think the number one way that we can provoke our children to wrath, drive them to frustration and anger and resentment, number one, inconsistency. Inconsistency, one of the most important principles, if not the most important, is right here. Now, every parent has thought at some point, I know I have, I just don't want to deal with it right now. Right? I just don't want to deal with it right now. I'll just let it go this time. Don't do that. (laughs) That's an error. We must be consistent. Proof. Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod... Hateth his son, but there's another half to that verse, but he that loveth him chastens him, old English word, be times. It's an old English word. It means speedily, (laughs) right now. The Hebrew, in fact, is the word sahar, which means to diligently seek. The full idea then is discipline comes quickly and consistently. Quickly and consistently. If you promise discipline for a certain thing, carry it out every time. On the other hand, don't discipline something one time but fail to discipline the next time. Children need a consistent framework of discipline. They need to know the boundaries and they need to know the boundaries never change. Therefore, uncertainty produces frustration. Frustration. Ponder a second principle, and that is harsh punishment or punishment given out of anger. Proverbs couldn't be clearer on this one. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, 1334. Is it not significant that the humanist says the exact opposite of what God says? I mean the polar opposite. See, if you really love your children, you will let him express himself. Mm Mm-hmm. And you will never punish him, especially by any physical means. You will just let him express his inner being. No thanks, he's depraved. (laughs) Express his inner being. I don't think so. That's not love. That is not love. If you don't chasten that child, you hate that child in the practical way. Doing that, in fact, shows you actually hate him, and the result will be that you will create a monster. We also read the following in Proverbs twenty-nine, fifteen: The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Withhold not correction from the child. This is in twenty-three, thirteen. For if thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Now, granted, he may scream like he is, right? But he won't. Thou shalt beat him with a rod, and thou shalt deliver his soul from hell. Let me just throw this in this evening. We learned, you know, at first we were using one of, you know, these little paddles that have the little ball attached, and men try to do those, and they look like complete idiots. I'm at the chief of the list there. And we found that was pretty good. But then we began to read scriptures and say, you know, it says a rod. You know what works really good? a quarter-inch dowel rod. About that long? Ouch. We knew it was really doing good because we were leaving on vacation once, and my wife says, well, we need to take something for discipline. My son goes into his room and brings out that little tiny paddle and says, hey, Mom, take this. (laughs) Uh Aha! We have discovered something, haven't we? No, a rod. See, it just takes wrist action; doesn't need to take much effort. Works very well. God knows what He's talking about, folks. God knows what He's talking about. See, physical punishment most certainly is not abuse. The lack of discipline is the real abuse. It is absolutely essential to teach a child right from wrong, obedience from disobedience, godliness from ungodliness. Where parents fail is that they get exasperated. They, it just, doesn't it? I know this never happened to you. It just kind of builds up and then all of a sudden you just explode, right? Don't do that. My wife was a master of this. She'd say, well, let's go to your room. And we'd get it over with, then it was over. But sometimes, I'm glad my son's not here. Uh, sometimes, he would, uh, we'd be all done, and we'd want to hug and get this thing over with, and we'd try to hug him, and he'd just be straight as a poker and wouldn't hug back. Oh, and my wife would say, oh, I see we're not done yet. <laughs> this sometimes went on for a while, and finally, he gave up. Parents, I want to encourage you with something. You're bigger than them, okay? You're bigger than them. And indeed, you must always win the battle. Now, granted, sometimes you need to pick your battles, okay? I don't have time to get into that. Sometimes you'll need to pick them when we could, that issue we could deal with some other time. But pick your battles, but boy, when you pick one, you better win it because it's a battle of the wills. And my will is stronger than yours. So therefore, where we fail is that we explode, we get exasperated. Proverbs again speaks, 29:22: "An angry man stirreth up strife, and a furious man aboundeth in transgression. Don't lose your temper. If the parent gets mad, it makes the situation far worse. And the parent must always beware of being too severe. In discipline. That's usually a guy problem. That's usually a dad issue. Any punishment must meet, not exceed the severity of the disobedience. Thirdly, I've got to go on. Verbal abuse is a third principle. Verbal abuse, folks, I can't tell you. I I wish I could spend some time here. Verbal abuse can sometimes be more damaging than physical abuse. Yelling, screaming, Other things that fail to accomplish anything, positive, they also destroy a parent's credibility in the eyes of the child. Proverbs 16, 24, Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Sweet words, calm. We find, in fact, further sarcasm, name-calling, and other such things are also common day. Can scar a child quite literally for the rest of their lives it can make little scars proverbs 20 or pardon me uh, proverbs 12:18 wonderfully pictures there is that speaks like the piercings of a sword our words can pierce like a sword again in 15:1 grievous words stir up anger have you ever noticed it's strange that parents will say things to their children that they would never, ever say to any other human being. Out of fear of ruining their reputation, not to mention getting punched in the nose, right? We say things to our kids we'd never say to someone else. So, indeed, we need to be very careful about verbal abuse. Fourthly, ponder another, and that is no praise or encouragement can drive your children to exasperation and anger. No praise or encouragement. We should be as quick to praise for right as we are to punish for wrong. If we fail in this, we can produce resentment and a feeling that one just can't do anything right. We'll eventually cause that person to stop trying altogether. Solomon spoke to his son, "My son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice even mine; yea, my reign shall rejoice when thy lips speak right things." Proverbs 23:15. Folks ponder a fifth principle with me this evening, simple neglect. Simple neglect. If you are too busy for your children, you are too busy. Something's got to give, something's got to go, maybe something that you'll have to stop doing, but whatever it is, you make that time. David neglected Absalom, remember? And what was the result? Drove that son to rebellion, treason, and even attempted patricide in 2 Samuel 14 and 15. And as we've noted it is the father who is to train up a child in the way he should go, Proverbs 22:6, 6, and he can't do that if he's not at home. Sixth principle, favoritism or comparison with other children. Favoritism or comparison with other children. One of the biggest mistakes parents make is saying, why can't you be more like your brother? or, Why can't you be more like your sister? Moreover, there are parents who openly show favoritism to one child over another. Proverbs 28 21, however, counsels to have respect of person, that is, show partiality, is not good. Please remember Jacob favored Joseph, right? Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. Favoritism. And look at the results. Of favoritism. Disastrous. Never pit one child against the other. By the way, I'll just throw this in. You know, your children will pit you two against each other, right? They know it works. <laughs> so they'll pit one against the other. Make sure you're both on the same page. And they'll find out real quick, real quick. Well, that didn't work. That didn't work. Ponder number seven, overprotection. Overprotection. Now, folks, obviously we're protective. Boy, I found that out quick. Not only as a husband, but as a it just it just skyrockets when you have a child. I mean, you don't even look crossways at my, my family, dude, right? We're protective. But we can give them a little rope, okay? Give them a little rope. Once in a while, allow them, when they prove that they're ready, to make some of their own decisions. i just share this with you. I can't help it. We we did that to our son once. He was uh, eight or nine. And we gave him a choice. I don't know if you're going to appreciate this or not. You're going to say, you're unfair. We gave him a choice to go to this particular thing or go to church, go to a, a, a church activity. He chose right, but he found out years later, and we praised him, you made the right decision. Appreciate that, son. Let's hug and wonderful, wonderful time. We told him years later when he got much older that it's a good thing you made the right decision because if you hadn't, you were going anyway. And he said, well, that wasn't fair. I said, okay, you can take that out on your kids one of these days, okay? We give them some rope. We make sure we are holding it, but we give them that opportunity. The idea, Proverbs 22, 6, of training up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That illustrates that we do the training they, that they know right from wrong and know that we trust them to do right. My wife and I kind of looked at each other in that situation and we both with a glance thought, we're pretty sure he'll make the right decision. Thank you, Lord, he did. Young folks, I want to encourage you by the same token. This provides you an opportunity to give your mom and dad reason to trust you. Give them reason to trust you and you will have a family that's precious. When there is trust and a reason and an understanding that we can trust one another. Another, an eighth principle is pressuring for achievement. Pressuring pressuring for achievement, just a, a thought here or two. Certainly we want our children to do their best. We want them to do the best that they can. That's all that matters. But folks, sadly, we also do not want to pressure them. Sadly, I have found over the years that the motive here often is substitutionary. In other words, the parent wants the child to achieve in an area which he didn't achieve, or he wants that child to equal his achievement. So in short, usually the motive is just self-glory, just glory. So whether it's athletics, whether it's career, or anything else, we need to teach our children Proverbs 22, 25, 27, to search their own glory is not glory. To search their own glory is not glory at all. And therefore, 1 Corinthians 1 31 will insert that he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Teach our children that we're going to do everything that to glorify God, not glorify ourselves. We live in a society of self glorification everywhere we look. Let's not teach our children that. They'll have enough of that input from others. Folks, one, one other principle here, number nine, failure to express that you love your children and you want them. And maybe you're thinking, well, I don't need to be reminded of that. Well, I hope not. Failure to express that you love your children and want them. Sadly, there are many parents that, who... Ex- Express to their children by word or action that they're unwanted or that they're actually an intrusion on their lifestyle. Without even thinking how it sounds, I've actually heard more than one parent say in the presence of their child, you were an accident. Now, folks, even if that was true, don't tell them that. I've heard other parents actually say, oh, we, we can't do that particular activity because of the kids. Don't let them know that. After hearing that a few times, they can begin to feel that they're a hindrance to their parents' happiness. So therefore, after, uh, it, it cannot be overemphasized that the parents' time is everything. And indeed, parents who do not invest their time in their children will produce, indeed, a resentment in their children. We've mentioned this previously, but I want to repeat how important it is that families do things as families. Proverbs 17, 1 declares: "Better is a dry morsel, and quietness therewith, than a house full of sacrifices or feasting with strife." In other words, let me paraphrase it: a piece of dry toast in a relaxed setting is better than a feast in an unhappy house. Folks, again, typically families today they go out of the house as if a bomb exploded. They just explode out of that house. And as the fragments scatter in every direction, so each family member goes his or her own way. Once in a while, if everybody's schedule allows, the whole family is together for an entire evening, but that is increasingly rare. That is not God's design. That is not God's design. God has designed the family to be together in the home, in the church, in the children's schooling, and in every other area of life. God's desire... In the children's, uh, God's desire for the family member is to be a part of that family unit and that family to be together. But folks, our text gives us a second element of child training. That was the, that was the longest, but I'd I share just uh, two or three others with you. Do not provoke your children to wrath. Secondly, bring children up. Bring children up. We often read verse 4 and mistakenly think that there are only two things involved, that is, nurturing and admonishing. But when you really look, you see that there are three here. The foundational principle here is the word behind bring them up. These three words translate a single Greek word. It is the word ektrepo, which means to nourish, promote health, strength, and even educate. So this bringing children up, then, is a general term that tells parents that they are responsible for raising and training their children. In light of the chaos of our present day, this is absolutely critical. Again, we can only touch on this, but it is absolutely essential that we must not only recognize the biblical fact that it is a parent's responsibility to raise, train, and educate their children, But also realize, therefore, it's not even the state's right to do so, and much less its responsibility to have anything to do with it. I know that's very unpopular, but I want to share a couple of just quick thoughts with you. You remember a few years ago, First Lady Hillary Clinton made a famous statement that truly summed up the humanistic philosophy of our state education? Do you remember it? Of course you do. It takes a village to raise a child. I kind of paraphrased that here a while back. I said it takes a village idiot to raise a child, but that's completely different. But that's uh, what That woman could not have been more wrong if she researched and did in-depth research on how to be wrong. It's just amazing that you could be that wrong on accident. How Christians need to be aware of just how dangerous public education really is. I don't want to offend anyone, but I don't say that lightly. And if you don't believe this, just go back and trace the fall of the Roman Empire. As if Roman society was not bad enough it became worse when Greek philosophy began to infiltrate Roman society. When Greek teachers began teaching the children, the empire began to crumble. Because on top of the empire's own debauchery, a major contribution to its fall was this Greek philosophy, beginning with Greek sophist philosopher Protagoras to guys like Socrates and Plato, right up through into modern times with John Dewey and many, many others we could list, humanism and atheism ruled the day. In dramatic contrast, it is fascinating indeed to discover, did you know this? The fact that from the time the pilgrims landed in 1620... Until the 19th century, there was no such thing as public education. Folks, I could go on and get into depth in this for the next hour or so, but such an idea was ne- <laughs> would never have occurred to our founding fathers. Education was solely in the hands of parents and the church, period. But sadly, not only has our society changed that, but... I think it far more tragic. The church has fallen right in to that deep pit. Folks, we are are to bring them up. We are to train them. Well, again, I've got to go on. Would you ponder a third principle of child training, and that is discipline, children. Discipline. We see here in the words, in the nurture of the Lord. Nurture, that's the key word here. It it translates the word paideia. It is used to show the stronger side of child training. It shows that there must be discipline and at times even punishment. We mentioned it earlier in Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hates his son, but he that loveth him, chasten him, be times that is diligently and immediately. By nature, a child will not listen. By nature, they will not obey. By nature, they are depraved and self-centered, so they must be forced to obey. Now, again, there are, of course, two extremes we must avoid in our discipline. We can read about the first extreme if we go back to the Victorian era. We see in the Victorian era the tyranny of the father, Children were not allowed to express their opinions. They weren't even allowed to ask questions. And in fact, punishment was often brutal, sometimes even inhumane. But modern society gives us the other extreme. Many people, often under the advice of child psychologists, have done away with discipline altogether. Children are allowed to defiantly say no to the parents freely disobey, and ultimately end up ruling the house. But please notice a marvelous subtlety in the text. Notice that it says, bring them up in discipline. That little tiny word is so important. We should not just discipline children and make them obey. That's not enough. Rather, we should teach them the importance of discipline. We teach them when they're ready for it. You're not going to be able to do this with a three-year-old. We know that, right? But when they get old enough, we will be able to teach them the why of discipline. Even at early age, we can teach them and plant that seed, the why of discipline, the why, mom, The reason mommy says this, the reason mommy is punishing you, is because it pleases God that you obey mommy. Make it simple, but plant that truth of why, because it's right. So therefore, teach them the why. In other words, God wants us to train them to be disciplined, to be disciplined. If we just demand obedience with no training and no understanding, our children will obey only as long as they're under our roof. When they leave home, they will not be disciplined because you didn't teach them to be disciplined. So the key factor here then is that we discipline must be in the Lord, of the Lord. We should not teach our children our opinions or our preferences. Now, that's hard to do, isn't it? You agree? <laughs> that's hard to do. But don't teach them your opinions or your preferences. They'll come up with those on their own. Rather, teach them what God says. Neither should our rules be based on legalism. Rather, we can put the matter this way. Let us teach our children character character and conviction, not conformity. Let us teach them character and conviction, not conformity. We do not want to make them conform to our image. We want to make sure they are transformed to whose image? Christ. We want them to be transformed. Folks, in... With that in mind, there are several practical principles of discipline. For the sake of time, let me just give you the top two. Very practical. First, the most important principle in discipline is that discipline is always for disobedience, not mistakes. Always for disobedience. How confusing it is for a child if he gets discipline for spilling some milk but gets let go for not picking up the toys that you told him to pick up. Obedience is everything in discipline. Discipline along with punishment must come when there is willful refusal to obey instruction. But punishing a child for an innocent error will destroy his spirit, destroy his initiative, make him think that he can't do anything right. And once again, obedience must be obedient. A parent should not have to repeat himself. Can I share something that drives me crazy? I know that you won't care because I'm leaving tomorrow. You don't care. But when parents say, one, two, no, you should never get the one out. It ought to be now. Now. If you want to put a time limit on it, it's a nanosecond, okay? A billionth of a second. We're not doing any counting here. It must be obedient, it must be consistent. And folks, if I may be blunt for a moment, the parent who allows a child to say no is raising an undisciplined brat who will be no good to to society or anyone else. No, we are teaching them to be disciplined. May I share again, as I did this morning, we're not trying to raise children. We're trying to raise godly adults, trying to raise future Christians and train them to be everything that God would have them to be. And secondly... Not only must it be for disobedience, but I've mentioned it already. It must be, secondly, consistent. This is second only to disobedience. A parent's moods must never be allowed to control discipline. If discipline is promised, it must be carried out. Don't carry it out on one occasion but fail to do so on another. Now, will a parent ever make a mistake? (laughs) Yeah, we made a few of those. What should you do if you discipline your child for something but later find out the child was not guilty? Well, you could just say, well, that's for next time. (laughs) That work? (laughs) Or I'll tell you what, that's for the time the other day that I didn't catch you. Okay? No. (laughs) I'm sorry. You know the impression that you will make on a child when you admit that you're wrong? Now, you don't want to make a habit of that. But indeed, it underscores that, yes, we make mistakes, but we're doing everything because that's what God would have us to do. So in that event, a parent should apologize, and this will serve to increase the child's respect for you. Dad was wrong. But yeah, he... Didn't know about that thing last week, but he was wrong this time. So, indeed, it will emphasize that respect. One other principle, folks, and that is to instruct children. To instruct them in the admonition of the Lord. Oh, what a principle. The admonition of the, of the Lord. I love this word. The word that is used here in the Greek is the word Nothesia. There's a subtle difference here between this word and the previous word that's translated nurture. And let me make it real simple. nothasia is the milder term and pictures training through encouragement and warning, while the other word, paideia, pictures training by active discipline. Let me simplify that. Paideia is training by act. nothasia is training by word. We need them both. The nurture, that's the act. The admonition is indeed the word. That gives us the complete picture. Parents are to train their children in every area of life by act when it's necessary, but by word and instruction constantly. Folks, what a difference there is between what God says and what man says. God says that parents are to teach their children, uh, are to teach, and that children are to listen. Modern society, humanism says, liberate children. Let them choose their own destiny. Let them choose their own religion. Let them choose their own views on economics and morality and values. What, are you crazy? You let them choose their religion and their values and their economic? What do you want to create this person who's worthless in the world how ridiculous a child comes into this world helpless totally helpless we must teach them how many of you felt when that child was first born and started toddling around and doing things and you thought you know you would think that when this kid comes out he could do something on his own but they can't you would think they ought to know something but they don't It's up to us. God has given us that precious child. Happy is the man whose quiver is full, right? They're a heritage. How many people today, they want to prevent this? But God said children are a heritage of the Lord. They're part of our inheritance. How many people would turn down a million bucks in inheritance? But we want to get rid of kids? It's a heritage. Happy is the man whose quiver is full. So, folks, God has given us this gift. We must therefore teach them. Teach them to love truth. Teach them to love morals. Teach them to love values. Teach them, most of all, to love God and his word. Folks, I I want to bring it to a close this evening and close out our our conference. I've got to stop there, but if you'll, you'll let me. Can I go two more minutes, something like that? I want to share one closing thought with you. And that is what we could call a family legacy. The word legacy, according to Webster's dictionary, is something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or predecessor from the past. Isn't it interesting? Politicians are often concerned about their legacy. That is how they are going to be remembered, and so they when it passes on to the next generation. Have you ever noticed, sadly, however, this sometimes results in quote-unquote memoirs that mix fact with wishful thinking, right? They're concerned about their legacy, but far more important is the legacy that every parent, especially a father, leaves behind. And this is what I'd like to share with you as we close. I recently came across a news item long ago, about around the year 1900. which appeared in the New York Times on July 2nd of that year, 1900. It is a fascinating story of family legacy that compares two different families from the same era. The first family was the Jukes family, J-U-K-E-S. Now, that wasn't the real name of the family. Rather, it was a pseudonym meaning bad, wicked, or disorderly. The word Jukes was originally used in southeastern states to refer to a roadside drinking establishment that offered cheap drinks, food, and music for dancing, and often, of course, was a cover for a brothel. Well, while visiting six separate prisons, Richard Dugdale, who lived from 1841 to 1883, an American sociologist and member of the executive committee of the Prison Association of New York, was surprised to find criminals in every one that descended from a single man, one single individual. In 1877, he published the results of his five year long study under the title The Jukes, a study in crime, pauperism, disease, and heredity. He used the name Jukes then to refer to 42 different names, all of whom descended from a fellow by the name of Max Dugdalested, born between 1720 and 1740 of Dutch ancestry. Now, here's the point. As a result of his research, which included studying the records of inmates of the 13 county jails in New York State, as well as the records of poor houses and courts, Dugdale discovered that the descendants of Mr. Jukes totaled 1,200 people of ill repute. Of that number, 130 were criminals, including thieves and murderers, 18 were brothel keepers, 120 were prostitutes, and some 300 were professional paupers what we today would call persistent welfare recipients. Only 20 of the 1,200 learned a trade and 10 of those learned it in state prison. Dugdale also estimated that this family had cost the public in that day 1.2 million dollars. Think of that in our dollars. Now, in dramatic contrast, another man born in the same era was the great preacher, theologian, professor, philosopher, Jonathan Edwards. Best known for his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Edwards is considered by many as one of the greatest minds in American history and a major contributor to the Great Awakening. His books, Freedom of the Will and a Treatise Concerning Religious Affections are classics, to say the least. In 1897, scholarly study of Edward's life and progeny revealed that of 1,500 of his descendants, only six were criminals and only two were paupers. The rest were people of high caliber in education, literature, statesmanship, mining, railroading, law, medicine, and, of course, theology. Among that number, in fact, 283 were college graduates, 13 were college presidents. Among those descendants were such prominent American citizens as Vice President Aaron Burr, college presidents Timothy Dwight, Jonathan Edwards Jr., and Merrill Edwards Gates. Jonathan and Sarah were also ancestors of the First Lady, Edith Roosevelt, publisher Frank Nelson Doubleday, and writer Robert Lowell. My dear friends, can there be any doubt as to the underlying reason of such a difference in those two family legacies? Deuteronomy 5, 9 through 10 declares, I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Those verses are the reason we then read in the very next chapter, chapter 6, Verses 6 through 9, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, when you rise up. Thou shalt bind them with a sign, that, uh, a sign upon thine hand. They shall be the frontless between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on the gates. Do we get the point? That the word of God should permeate Our homes permeate our lives. Why? Because it makes a difference in our legacy. We also read in Proverbs 22.6, train up a child. We've quoted it already. When he is old, and will not depart from it. Likewise, Psalm 78 declares, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. We will not hide them from our children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done that the generation to come might know them, even the children which shall be born, who should arise and declare them to the children, that they might set their, their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Teach them to your children. The Apostle Paul echoed all of that. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, the admonition, of the Lord. Folks, a family legacy like Edwards doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come automatically. How many of you have found parenting just to be the easiest thing you've ever done in your life? It doesn't come easy. It comes by enthroning God and His Word. And those who reject What God says will have no excuse if that juke's legacy descends on their family. Let us raise our children to the glory of his grace. Folks, let's have homes that shout to the world that being a Christian makes all the difference. God bless you, folks. I appreciate your attention. You You have endured so well. God bless you. Thanks.